Shit Platypus Says, episode 49. Welcome to a new episode of Shit Platypus Says, the commentary on the commentary on the left. My name is Pamela Nogales. I am one of your co-hosts. In this episode, we've got two segments. First, our European correspondent Andreas Ventisberger interviews Emmanuel Rota, a leftist historian from Italy who published extensively on the history of the Italian Communist Party. Emmanuel currently lives in the United States and is the director of the European Union Center at the University of Illinois. They discuss the aftermath of the long 68 in Italy, the current crisis of the Italian government, as well as the impact and outlook of the millennial left during the crisis of neoliberalism. In the second segment, we showcase Platypus New Zealand, a new chapter which offers reading groups and coffee breaks at the University of Otago. Our New Zealand member, Michael, together with our Melbourne member, Ryan Mickler, sit down with Thomas Roud, the founder of the Canterbury Socialist Society, a local branch of the newly developed New Zealand Federation of Socialist Societies. They discuss the socialist William Morris, the role of fraternal non-sectarian organizations on the left, and explore how the Federation aims to offer a new type of organization for the New Zealand left. You'll find more information on the New Zealand chapter in the episode description if you'd like to get involved. As always, if you like the podcast, share it, help us spread the word online. The podcast can be found under SPS in Spotify, as well as Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. All right, here we go. I have as a guest today, Emanuel Rota. Emanuel Rota is an associate professor at the Center for Global Studies and the director of the European Union Center at the University of Illinois. He has published numerous articles on the history of the Italian Communist Party and is also the author of A Pact with Vichy, Angelo Tasca from Italian Socialism to French Collaboration. Emmanuel, thanks a lot for uh, being on the podcast today. Thank you, Andreas. I would like to start with uh, a very classic question, and that is, how did you become interested in the left? What were the ideas, the politics that uh, drew you to the left? And um, are you currently affiliated with any leftist groups in, in Italy or somewhere else? I currently live in the United States, so that's, that's a little bit of a different situation for me. Going back to, to the original question, it's really something that is connected with my entire biography, if you like. I, I grew up in Italy. Uh, I was a child in the 1970s. I was born in 1970. My family's background was a working class background. Uh, I'm still the only one who graduated from college. Uh, from my family, and <laughs> we didn't have many books uh, in our home. There were a couple of interesting books that, at the time, 
I really didn't understand exactly why we're there. Uh, we had Jean Jaurès, History of the French Revolution, uh, <laughs> the entire four volumes. Oh, wow. Uh, then we had b- biographies of Fidel Castro <laughs> and stuff like that. We were Eskimos, which at the time uh, was a name that uh, Italians used to refer to these overcoats that were very cheap and very... Uh, now, of course, the, the term uh, is uh, slightly understood as a racist term, but at the time it wasn't the case and it was a sort of uniform uh, of the Italian left. But but again, at, at the time I was just a child. Um, I remember many many years later, when I went to to see my barber, and he told me, "Oh yeah, your grandfather and I were, were member of the Communist Party since 1944," and I literally didn't know anything about that. So I, I grew up in a in a leftist environment without knowing it, and even though we were clearly a leftist family, uh, there was a sort of sense of uh, fear in those years before, because of terrorism. <laughs> I, I remember once I, I found somewhere a BB gun and I brought it home. And, and for me, it was an amazing find because imagine, again, I, I, we were poor, so I couldn't afford <laughs> such a toy. I'd found a toy and, and a lovely one. And my father was absolutely terrorized and proceeded to throw it away immediately because he didn't know what it was, right? So it was a sort of of, of difficult time. Uh, When I went to high school, I sort of, again, started saying something like that I I was an anarchist or something like that. But again, mostly as a sort of 14-year-old sense of rebelliousness. Uh, And then somebody told somebody else, and this girl, uh, whose name was Marina uh, showed up in my classroom and said, oh, I heard you're interested in politics. We have a meeting of our anti-military collective. I showed up. They they were preparing a leaflet to protest the fact that uh, the end of World War One was still celebrated in Italy as a national holiday. And, and then I started sort of going uh, the first uh, uh, political rallies, uh, so by, by, by the age of 15, I was writing uh, leaflets. What were the texts you were reading back then? From the perspective of the new left, we were reading uh, Foucault. We, I, I remember this, uh, this book titled The Ecological uh, Trick. I remember it had a sort of dedication at, at the beginning that said something like, this book is dedicated to uh, the people who... Uh, living conditions where no member of the WWF would allow uh, animals to live, uh, factory workers, right? <laughs> uh, sort of interesting angles-based, very second international uh, reading of, of the new left uh, and, eco- and the ecological movement. So uh, this kind of stuff, right? So uh, at the time, the Italian, uh, the Italian high schools still had a long memory of, of the very, very long Italian 1968. 1968 didn't stop in 1968, as it did in other places, but it really really lasted until 1978. By the time I I went to high school in 1984, there was a little bit of a continuity. So I I was a red diaper kind of kid (laughs) 
who ended up in a high school where there was still a lot of memory of the 1970s. Uh, people who had been affiliated mostly in my case with this group called uh, Lotta Continua, which again was a sort of extreme leftist, far leftist group. When we talked about the themes of the early 80s, there was apartheid, uh, there was the eternal Palestinian issue. Reagan, he had just played some nuclear warheads in Italy for the first time. There was a question of nuclear energy. There was a question of the so-called Star Wars system, this shield to protect the United States and perhaps the West from a nuclear attack. Other themes that actually went in a completely different direction. We had uh, Tiananmen, uh, we had the invasion of Afghanistan by the Soviet Union. So it, it was a time when a lot of stuff was happening. The Italian Communist Party at, at the time was a gigantic structure. They were very generous in allowing kids like me to use their facilities to print lift labs, to make phone calls and stuff like that. Uh, at the end of the 1980s, we experienced some sort of crisis. Where were we going from there? Uh, at the time, we were managing a free radio recording social movement, but increasingly, we saw the uh, disappearing uh, of this uh, social tension that we still could experience uh, in the 1980s. At a certain point, we took a sort of Gramscian move. We, we thought, okay, the, the, the thing to do here is to be ready for a cultural war in the long run. Some of us became judges and, and lawyers, I mean, in particular the ones who were mostly interested in the question of the respect of the law and, and the sort of protection of democracy. Some others, like myself, were really interested in history, uh, how you could uh, talk about memory and preserve on, on one hand the memory of uh, some experiences and on the other hand sort of debunk the traditional narrative that uh, the Italian state was pushing at the time, uncovering the colonialism and its legacy, imperialism and its legacy. After uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the uh, after the Italian Communist Party dissolved or basically then relaunched, um, what were your political affiliations up until today? First, there was, of course, the collapse of the Soviet Union. Th that was also partially a, a personal experience because we were not fond of the Soviet Union. Uh, I mean, we, we were coming from uh, a tradition that b between class and party we were told you should always choose class. Uh, particularly in the Italian Communist Party, uh, the more pro-Soviet people uh, were the, the more conservative ones. They were really fond of this idea of the party and, and, and obeying the party, whereas we, 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 we couldn't care less. I mean, the party was, was an important, crucial tool, but, uh, but we were always with the movements so, <laughs> or we were trying to be with with the resistance, wherever it was, right? It, it took another couple of years after 89 uh, for the Italian Communist Party to change its name. Uh, again, people, uh, including myself, were trying to claim that the legacy of, of the working 
class movement was much more complicated and it could not be reduced to the legacy of the Soviet Union. But the argument on the other side, which was you can't continue to call yourself uh, with the same name that people who killed so many people did so many horrible things. What is in a name, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's an in- interesting, complicated tradition, but you are assuming responsibility for something that perhaps you should then uh, advocate for yourself. Um, and I remember the time when then General Secretary of the Italian Communist Party, Achille Ketto, went to the most famous working class uh, section of the Italian Communist Party in Bologna, sort of capital of Italian of the Italian PC, and announced that he wanted to change the name of the party. And I was going to high school that morning and I ran into this guy uh, who had been a, a workers in this uh, factory in Milan. He was significantly older than us, basically our grandfather. He, he was telling us of the time when Palmiro Togliatti, after uh, World War II, and, and was shot and almost killed, and how uh, all the workers in the factories had sort of run <laughs> to get weapons to be ready to, to sort of react to this. So, I mean, this, this was not some sort of, <laughs> we are doing it just on paper. I mean, this guy <laughs> was one of those guys who really at a certain point had a rifle ready to act if the party had decided to, to do so. And at the time, he was very, very moderately just distributing the, the newspaper of the party and, and sort of talking to people in the street at the time. And he told me, they are the, the leaders of the party. They know better than we do. <laughs> so again, I, I couldn't identify with that. But I had to respect, right? I mean, you, you have to respect this legacy too. And so uh, at the time, I understood that, again, that there was no space for... For even in the name of the same tradition that he was claiming to, to, to hold on to a name or to that tradition. So after that, I thought that it was more important for me to, to be a good historian than to be a bad politician. And a new generation of people immediately moved in. So the, the new party of the left attracted some people, even from my high school, people who had, I had known all my life, who had never been close to anything that I'd done that far, uh, who instead became sort of key figures in, in, this, new, in this new movement. And there was a, lot of, a little bit of attention too, right? I mean, I, I, I could claim some memory for myself, but they wanted to do something completely different. Uh, they, they had never been uh, even close or remotely close to Marxism. That was in the 90s. This was in the 90s, yes, absolutely. Some of the people who are now, again, ma- managing the, the PD, the, the Democratic Party, the, the current leftist party, largest leftist party in Italy, were really resentful of the fact that I sort of st- stayed around, right? That they thought that it's <laughs> a different kind of movement, a different kind of party. And, and then I, I, I went to, to the United States, and again, I, I continued a sort of academic career, right? So, so what I do continues to be a little bit of the Gramscian plan from the beginning, which is paradoxically working, right? I mean, the, the left 
retreated from, from civil society and sort of <laughs> entrenched itself in universities uh, in the United States, but not only in the United States. If you go to college, uh, you most likely come out a leftist. If you don't go to college, you don't. <laughs> there was a very funny joke at the end of the 1970s about the fact that it was a generation that wanted to change the world and ended up changing the history departments, which I, I think <laughs> describes a little bit uh, the situation, right? I went to Berkeley because, again, I wanted to work in that specific university. I studied with Martin Jay, who is a world expert of the uh, Frankfurt School, and I think one of the uh, most interesting even though he's not a Marxist, one of the most interesting readers of Marxism, Marxism and Totality, uh, is still a book I constantly recommend to all my students. Given your, your historical experience with uh, the aftermath of the long 68 in Italy, how would you assess the impact of the millennial generation entering into politics, um, especially on the Italian left, but not just on the Italian left? With Uh, figures like Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn, we saw thousands of young, mostly middle-class people becoming adjunct supporters of labor in the UK, in the case of, of Jeremy Corbyn, or the Democrats in the US. Were there similar phenomena on the Italian left uh, during that time, and would you describe them as successful? I would say that uh, since the end of the 1970s, something crucial happened uh, everywhere in the world, right? So the, the Italians often blame terrorism for the tragic end of uh, that movement. The reality is that it was a particularly bitter and unpleasant end, but those movements ended everywhere. And so there is not a place uh, where sort of at the end of the 80s, these movements continued or when they were successful uh, outside of Italy. Each nation sort of has a sort of narrative about why things didn't proceed, didn't go on. But the reality is that something structural happened, particularly since the 1990s, since the end of the 1990s. What we see is the end of what historians would like to call, usually call the, the great divergence. Uh, since the beginning of the 19th century, Europe and the West uh, sort of diverge from uh, other uh, big civilizations, economies of the world, India and China mostly, and became incredibly uh, more productive and successful from an industrial capitalist perspective. This created a sort of gigantic uh, uh, gap between uh, the West and the rest of the world, uh, and the history of colonialism, of course, is, is, a, is a large part of it. But the rise of China at the end of the 1990s and then the rise of India right now is creating a sort of redistribution of the world GDP. Uh, the, the Gini coefficient, which is, again, the, the level of inequality uh, we use to measure inequality in the world, in world terms is decreasing significantly. Uh, not because of, unfortunately, Africa, uh, not because of South America, but because more than two billion people, two billion and a half people, particularly in China and India, have increased their GDP per person, per capita, 
purchase parity established, right? So, so the, 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 the people in China and India are becoming wealthier and, and they are claiming for themselves a larger part of the world GDP. Uh, and what's happening, of course, is, is a sort of reconfiguration uh, of the industrial uh, and capitalist world. And areas like Italy uh, that are a little bit uh, fragile uh, and at the edge uh, of uh, the industrial world, uh, particularly lost ground, particularly lost ground. But this is happening everywhere. So there, there is a new sort of uh, conflict happening right now between uh, those who feel the need to be protected or think that the state should intervene in order to decrease internal inequality as a response to the rising sort of equality in the world. And so the fact that you can no longer become wealthy on the shoulders of exploitation of people in the former third world uh, and competition is brutal everywhere. There is an increasing number of people who are uh, really asking for the state to intervene and protect them. Now, in the United States, uh, in the UK, but I would say everywhere in the West, this has taken two roads. Urban people in the middle class who grew up with a strong anti-colonial civil right awareness are sort of pro-migrant, pro-third world equality, if you like, anti-colonial, post-colonial traditions uh, and are asking for reducing inequality by raising taxes, by, by redistributing wealth within uh, their own nations. In cases like particularly rural population, where again, the, the question of the diminishing ability to uh, enjoy a comfortable lifestyle uh, as heat uh, immensely, but without the sort of awareness of the world that uh, usually the urban middle class you were describing, particularly this millennial generation has, instead has created a different kind of uh, narrative where the protection is, again, a protection against the outside world. So, so the question is a sort of new corporativism where the question instead is protectionism, anti-migrant uh, narratives, uh, and rather than redistribution within their own societies, they are looking for maintaining the sort of economic advantage that the United States or the UK have uh, over the rest of the world. You can look at this question of isolationism and the question of controlling borders through these lenses. Uh, I read an article on your uh, on your fantastic platypus uh, uh, blog uh, about the fact that uh, Kowski uh, was right, uh, I, I, I couldn't disagree more. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I, th- <clears throat> I mean, the question would remain for us today, what, what, if, if Kowski were right, what does it mean for us today, right? Of course, of course. I, I find this very interesting. I would like to, to take this sort of analysis of what I would say mostly economic factors um, within the last 30 years 
during the time of the millennial generation to a sort of uh, political level. Because um, one of the occasions for this interview is the current government crisis in Italy. Right. And this crisis in Italy, um, it seems to be part of a larger crisis of the neoliberal consensus between Christian and social democrats in Western Europe. And that has been going on for some years now. We, we have seen this uh, in France, Spain or the Netherlands, but of course also in the UK with Brexit. So is this current crisis not only of Italian politics, but of European and indeed world politics, with its realignment of traditional voting behaviors, an opportunity for the advancement of socialism? Pretty much like when Lenin wrote Imperialism, debating with Kautsky, uh, the, still the question is, again, everything has changed, right? But, but, but the, I'm talking about an, a political ethos here. Either you imagine that the struggles w within your societies are connected with a crisis of neoliberalism that is connected with a legacy of colonialism. So, so when Lenin says that uh, imperialism is the last stage of capitalism, contrary to what Kautsky said, he doesn't understand it to be literal. He understands to sort of make a narrative that connects anti-colonial struggles with working class struggles at home. Uh, and, and it tries to break this idea instead that the, the, the working class is self-sufficient and can sort of solve its own problems in Europe, ignoring the anti-colonial struggles. Uh, again, I think that the configuration we have here is surprisingly, again, from, a, from an, an ethos perspective, not necessarily from an economic or social perspective, similar. Uh, are we coming out of this crisis uh, looking at uh, the world as a system, looking at the totality of the world? Or are we coming out of this crisis trying to save the, our sort of national Western advantage over other economic realities? So now in, in, in that sense, uh, I think the, the Bernie Sanders, uh, particularly people, have been incredibly, incredibly smart, right? I mean, this is something that comes out uh, from a generation, again, that, that sees the connections between civil rights, anti-colonial struggles, uh, pro-migrant narratives, and working class, and sort of uh, poor people even. I mean, it's not even the working class here, it's more generically the, the poor people in the United States. So I think the Bernie Sanders people have been incredibly good at understanding these connections and resisting the attempt to become, again, protectionist uh, uh, and, and sort of make a case of we should make sure that only the American middle class comes out okay out of it. In the Italian case, the awareness of the rest of the world is surprisingly less developed. Migration is... Uh, still dominated as a theme by uh, NGOs most often associated with uh, the Catholic Church. The Italian PD, the Italian leftist party, when they were in control of the government, particularly with the minister Miniti, were a sort of law and order kind of party. One of the interesting movements, the so-called Sardine, reformed the Italian Democratic Party from below, again, was 
proposing teams that were the Bernie Sanders teams. But at the same time, the emphasis was mostly on the structure of the party or the, the idea of a movement versus the idea of organization. There was not some sort of clear economic and social plan as an alternative to the one that the Italian right is proposing, which again is brutally clear, right? I mean, vote for us. We are semi-fascist, corporatist. We will protect Italy as such. So if you are Italian, you should feel protected. If you are not Italian, you should feel unwelcome. And the way for us to support the Italian working class is to support them as Italians. Now, the Italian young left is really turned between this question of being pro-Europe, being very much open to the world, very much open to international narratives, and at the same time, not structurally connected with other movements like our Spanish uh, or even Greek uh, friends were at a certain point. I don't know why that happened, but uh, the Cinque Stelle, the five-star movement, when it was for a moment of its uh, sort of time, an interesting movement of the left, particularly on questions of the common, right? That they were appropriating this idea of the common, particularly on questions of uh, water and natural resources. But they didn't make any effort to connect to other European or non-European realities. And in the European Parliament, they ended up with Farage, which doomed them because again, they, they sort of lost any ability to have a conversation and learn from other movements. Uh, the Italian far right constantly talks to the American far right. They talk to each other, they have conversations, they learn from think tanks everywhere. The Italian left has become surprisingly provincial, losing what was the main characteristic of the Italian Communist Party, which was the fact that it was not provincial. It was a part of a global narrative. You mentioned the international character of the Italian Communist Party. And you also mentioned before a, simil a similarity, if I understood you correctly, between the moment when Lenin wrote his imperialism pamphlet and the moment we are seeing right now. But I would argue that when Lenin wrote the imperialism pamphlet, his uh, conception of imperialism was very much conceived of as basically a heatening of the social contradiction of capitalism based on the revolutionary gains of the internationally organized working class. So he saw it as a, like I said, heatening of the contradiction that had to be led, the social crisis had to be led by a revolutionary vanguardist party to establish the dictatorship of the, uh, of the proletariat. If we assume that the social crisis is heatening now uh, today as well, I would argue that the working class today is incredibly less organized than it was uh, 100 years ago. And then the question also arises, who would take leadership of such a crisis? That's absolutely true. And, and I don't think that that's a, that's a part where Lenin is, re I mean, is relevant today. I think what Lenin's operation was, and it was, by the way, historically understood very well at the time, right? I mean, if you see what the far right said at the time was, okay, so the Soviet Union is trying to organize the revolt of the colonial people. 
uh, <laughs> which again is, is uh, something that scared the hell out of them. So to combine fear of the working class and fear of the racial other. In this sort of linguistic trick, imperialism is not the last stage of capitalism, but, but <laughs> linguistically created a trick that sort of connected the two of them, uh, again, emotionally uh, for the working class and the colonial people saying, we have a common enemy. Now, the direction, of course, uh, shouldn't sort of be predetermined. I think if there is one great thing about the speed of communication today is that we should be learning from experiences anywhere they happen. But at a certain point in the, in the early 20, 2000s, there was a lot of movement precisely to create a sort of multitude that communicated among themselves in order to have a common understanding and a common know-how. If I look around and, and I'm looking for leadership in the left around the world, who do I invite for dinner? <laughs> Literally, I mean, again, I, I, uh, for my generation, again, it was such a simple question, right? You would have opened the door to a cell and, and brought Nelson Mandela. You, you would have brought uh, so, so many other interesting people to the conversation. At a certain point, Lula seemed to, 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 all these experiences sort of a little bit collapse on themselves. Chavez experience collapse, uh, a, a lot of stuff uh, is no longer relevant. Now, the question is now the rebuilding of networks, really, uh, around the world of people who have experiences and can provide answers before we have to rediscover everything on our own. The legacy of Marxism for me is, again, the legacy of totality. Uh, capitalism is very good at presenting itself as a series of different phenomena that seem completely unconnected. Not only that, everybody I talk to is convinced that somewhere, somehow it works. So if you talk to Italians, they think that capitalism works pretty well in the United States. If you talk to Americans, they think it works pretty well in the UK, yada, yada, yada. If you travel, <laughs> you know that it doesn't work anywhere. It, it, but it keeps, again, it keeps this knowledge for itself. It keeps it separate from the sort of global uh, awareness. And, and this is a, a, a major weakness. In this moment, to be honest with you, in Italy, I don't see a lot of energy to deprovincialize the Italian debate. Building up on that, you mentioned that there is uh, the necessity of building networks today, or uh, if I understood you correctly, the necessity of having a political formation in a broadest sense that is capable of transferring historical experience. So, like you said, capitalism appears not just as one damn thing after another. And since you wrote extensively about the history of the Italian Communist Party, I would like to ask you, what is the legacy of not only the Italian Communist Party, but of the Marxist conception of the proletarian mass party? The legacy of the Italian Communist Party in Italy is, of course, uh, gigantic, right? Somehow, uh, I would say that there is also a legacy of nation building. A lot of farmers, workers, people who, for instance, moved uh, from southern Italy to northern Italy 
uh, in the early 1960s uh, as part of the economic recovery and expansion of that period, uh, arrived in hostile uh, cities that uh, were full of racist uh, narratives against the South, very much similar to uh, what Turkish workers experienced in Germany, for instance. But they found in the, uh, usually the Italian Communist Party or the, the, the trade unions or, or, or the workers' movement, uh, three different moments, but I mean, they really worked together their homes and identities and, and ways to participate and ways to discuss their own identity and have a democratic voice, not only in the factory, but also in, in society that they would have been denied, right? All of a sudden, you were not a former peasant from Calabria, uh, but you were uh, somebody speaking for the Communist Party or for the Communist trade union in the factory, in the city council, in the neighborhood. That legacy is invaluable. If there is something that made Italy, <laughs> it was partially the Italian Communist Party in that sense. There is a legacy, of course, of important rights that are enforced every day in Italian courts, right? I mean, if you are a, a, a worker and you uh, are hired by somebody and the person doesn't pay, you are protected, right? The state sort of pays for you uh, because you, you shouldn't be the victim of the fact that your, your boss is a, <laughs> is a horrible boss, right? And if you sue your boss, you most likely win the case. Or sort of uh, from rent to, uh, to working rights to, to public health. The, the general history of, of the left, which again is larger than the Communist Party, but of which the Communist Party was clearly part, uh, continues to provide what is left of a common civil society in Italy. Uh, and again, if you move to the United States, uh, you, you see the big difference, right? Where you are uh, given opportunities that very often you don't have in Italy, but at the same time, you are on your own very much uh, in, in many, many situations where in Italy you can count on these kind of networks of solidarity and protection that are understood as, uh, as rights. Now, what is instead completely lost, uh, I think in a, what has been uh, uh, lost, particularly in the last 10 years, was besides this international dimension, right? Uh, I think particularly the experience of Massimo D'Alema, uh, the first former communist, uh, the, the son of a communist, a communist all his life, who became the first former communist prime minister of Italy, and who wanted Italy to participate uh, in the war in Yugoslavia. Now, th th that was understood by the Italian left partially as opportunism, as a way for D'Alema to legitimize himself in the face of NATO and the United States. It's possible. I mean, I'm, I'm not denying that that might have been a crucial motivation. Jürgen Habermas at the time was also writing articles saying that we didn't want to live in a Europe of ethnic cleansing, which I think was also true. And I think the sort of the two dimensions 
really were still together at the time, right? A little bit of opportunism that came from the Italian communist tradition that always had a sort of instrumental approach to the next step. It's all about getting power. So <laughs> it's a, the accumulation of power for power's sake was part of this tradition too. But on the other hand, again, this, this idea that you would be looking at the question of Europe and the question of uh, what's happening outside of your borders uh, as a crucial question for you. Right now, I don't see the left with its own foreign policy, right? I mean, w w w how the foreign policy of the Italian left is different from the foreign policy of everybody else. So it's, it's NATO or anti-NATO in, in, in the name of Hungarian-American isolationism, if you like. Uh, so it's either the isolationism, protectionism of, of the right, or it's the status quo, the existing reality, and there is no effort in thinking about uh, an alternative European order. Where is the request, the pressing request to resume the question of a European constitution and, and European participation? I mean, th this kind of stuff that was important for the Italian Communist Party at a certain point in critiquing the ineffectiveness of democracy Italy has experienced, like many other European countries, an incredible situation where whenever somebody sort of challenges the, the, the established uh, economic orthodoxy, you lose the government within a couple of months. We saw it happening in, in Greece, we saw it happening in Italy with both the right and the left. In this situation, the question of democracy is left on the table and the question of freedom and, and the decide to participate is left on the table only for nationalists who want to reclaim for themselves uh, the right to decide for themselves. Where is the alternative coming from the left that asks the question of democracy in an interconnected world and what it means for participation today? That's something that the Italian communists would have asked and that the current Italian left doesn't ask. So would you think that something like a party or something like the Italian Communist Party, um, maybe in terms of its initial foundation um, or maybe in terms of the revolutionary aspirations of its, of its initial foundation, is necessary today? Organizations are crucial to go through moments like this one. When you are in a situation where you are retreating, the organization preserves the knowledge, uh, the, the, the strength, the, the, the militancy to continue through moments of crisis. So I would say that the Leninist model of the Revolutionary Party, if it ever was something relevant for Western Europe, it's certainly not so today. So I wouldn't imagine a sort of revolutionary party like that. But I do think that there is a question of how you preserve knowledge and energy in moments of crisis and retreat like this one. The problem, of course, is that you do not organize these uh, sort of institutions, which of course are like Kant would have said, <laughs> sort of deposit of, of, of knowledge and authority that allow people not to ask the question, right? <laughs> you, 
you, you don't have to ask what is right and what is wrong if the party tells you so. Sort of anti-enlightenment project, if you like. <laughs> but, uh, but these institutions are effective in moments of crisis, but you do not organize them in moments of crisis. Uh, because again, the, the authority is not there right now. So who has the authority to claim to have the authority to speak on behalf of people at this point? And, and the crisis of authority is in the left. Again, it's a crisis of leadership. It's a crisis of who do we invite for dinner among the world leaders so that we can have, we can learn something. Uh, I had this funny conversation with some friends uh, a couple of uh, days ago, and, and I think they want to invite Beyonce or... I don't know, oh, wow. Madonna, right? I mean, <laughs> really nobody left. So, so yes, uh, institutions, but what is the institution for? I would say that starting from networks, again, is probably the good trajectory that can be used, right? I mean, people should continue to do what you guys are doing, encourage conversations across countries, and try to see how we can put certain uh, common knowledge uh, in common. I think the aim of Platypus is not so much to um, put uh, like knowledge that is out there in connection with each other, but to actually raise the consciousness of what is missing today. Because in Platypus, we think that the history of the left, the history of one could say 100 years of counter-revolution, is wearing on the living today like a nightmare. Let's put it that way. What, what we are doing is the necessary but not the sufficient condition for the reconstitution of a Marxian left. What we try to do by raising these discussions, by trying to get the dead left to speak, we try to actually bring to consciousness the distortions of the last hundred years and how they shape our consciousness of history today. I assume you're also enough of a student of Marx and Nietzsche to know the danger of the, of the operation too, right? As in, uh, I think that when Marx defined communism as the ongoing movement that was changing the world, uh, was already sort of making sure that there was an awareness of the usefulness and uh, of the danger of history, right? Uh, be, because I think... Uh, how much the Hegelian language continues to help us or hurts us, right? I mean, how much do we believe in dialectics or we don't believe in dialectics? Uh, and what are the consequences of this? I, of course, like anybody else, I appreciate the, uh, the, the sort of Hegelian insertion in, in what you said about <laughs> uh, necessary and, and what is sufficient. Uh, but at the same time, it's hard to see if there is some sort of common language uh, that already existed and has to be recovered, or if it has to be in large sectors rebuilt. Again, the questions that were completely obscure to the traditional left. I mean, I think one of the problems, for instance, of the Italian left right now uh, is that uh, because of the legacy of the Italian Communist Party, two major themes that should be part of the discourse today, uh, which is to say the condition of women in Italy and two, the ecological condition are consistently ignored. Now, wh when I ask my students, do you think that climate change uh, and ecological disasters 
might destroy the world in the next 30 years. They all raise their hands. Uh, when I ask them, do you think that capitalism will be surpassed in 30 years? Nobody raised their hands. So there is a sort of imagination problem, which I think you're right in trying to recover, right? So let, let's try to recover an imagination that allows us to imagine a different system. But at the same time, let's not forget this question that the traditional left couldn't, even the left of the 1960s or 1970s couldn't imagine the urgency, the dramatic situation of climate change today and how that is a question of survival. Emmanuel, unfortunately, we're running out of time. Uh, thank you so much for the interesting interview. Of course. And uh, hopefully we can stay in contact. Absolutely. I'll give you a prediction. The, the, the far right will win the elections mostly because they have a project, again, of protectionism and, and health for the lower classes, whereas the left doesn't really have an answer to the question of inequality today in Italy. If you want to quote me on that. <laughs> I will. Thanks a lot. Good to see you. Bye. chapter of the Platypus Affiliated Society. We have two special guests today. Uh, firstly, we have Michael McClellan, who's recently became Platypus's first member in New Zealand, branching off from the Melbourne chapter. Michael recently had an article out in the Platypus's publication, the Platypus Review, titled, What is a Right-Wing right Protest Anyway? on the New Zealand Freedom Convoy protests, talking about a sequence of anti-vaccine mandate protests that were held earlier this year. We also have Tom Roud, who's a founding member of the Canterbury chapter of the New Zealand Federation of Socialist Societies, which was established in 2018 and has now grown to become a national federation of socialist societies. Tom Roud's going to talk to us today about the activities of his organization as well. So hi, Tom. Hi, Michael. How are you? Hi. Great. All right, Tom. You're one of the coordinators of the Canterbury chapter of the New Zealand Federation of Socialist Societies which is a group that facilitates educational and social events. Can you tell us a bit about the New Zealand Federation of Socialist Societies? And just a little bit about maybe yourself and how you came to the left. My background uh, in the New Zealand left came relatively late, I suppose, for a lot of people. Um, I would have been early 20s still, but nonetheless, like a lot of people have this real good red diaper baby story and I, I don't so much. My parents were fairly left-wing, but also um, relatively religious and stuff. And I grew up in a, um, a Protestant church, um, non-Anglican Protestant church, which had plenty of people concerned with like social justice and stuff like that, but not really a, um, a very you know radical uh, political wing to it or anything like that. But then through uni, I sort of started doing a philosophy degree after um, going to uni when I was 20 and got vaguely interested in some of the ideas around socialism. And I guess when I first 
took a step into the left itself was more pra uh, prompted out of counter demonstrations that I decided to organize when the right-wing resistance was still organizing in Christchurch, which is where I'm from. Uh, right-wing resistance being a, um, I think it's fair to call them a neo-Nazi organization in the sense that they literally dress up like neo-Nazis. They've got the little SS things and stuff. It's, it's not me. Uh, being hyperbolic, I think it's, it's fair, to, fair to call them that. Um, and they did their flag day, and I just remember thinking, well, that's pretty shit. I'm going to um, uh, try and do something with that. And a bunch of people came along, and some other socialists came along, and I hadn't really met any New Zealand Marxists or anything like that at that point. So I sort of got vaguely involved with some of them because some of them were quite useful, um, quite helpful in organizing a counter demonstration because I had no idea what I was doing. I was just like, Surely everyone doesn't like Nazis, right? This is pretty easy. So that's sort of how I came into it. Other than, you know, previous jobs I'd had as a cleaner and stuff, I was certainly in the union and stuff. So I'd seen that side of it to a degree. And after that, I sort of, I joined one of the um, socialist groups that, that was around at the time and they were called Fight Back. And they had just at that time recently split or grown out of, depending how you think about it, uh, the Workers' Party, which had been a sort of... Um, interesting merger of some very small Trotskyist and very small kind of Maoist adjacent uh, Marxist groups in the late 90s. Then just a couple of years of not really being engaged politically other than, um, you know, I think still being in the union at work and stuff. Um, but a few years down the track, me and some of those same friends and then some new friends as well would find we'd be talking about politics and economics at the pub over a pint and the rest of our friends got fucking sick of it um we just wouldn't stop talking about it so we're like oh maybe we should do this we should have a little event and um invite whoever wants to come along who's got a very broad and pretty bread and butter understanding of socialism and i think that first night we had about 40 people come through just to sit down and have a pint and chat to us and we we're like fuck all right let's, let's see what yeah. happens that was in 2018 once we sort of formalized our i mean our first member who was there at the or inaugural meeting who joined was 80 so while it was started by people more like my age so I'm 32 now and that was a few years ago we certainly pretty early on found a bunch of people who had probably been looking for something for a while and had previously been in things but all kind of you know it all it all dried up and they all went home and since then it's just sort of um we have a really educational focus and a, a dialogical focus I'd say like we don't do really intense education in terms of like looking at the classics really closely together and then discussing it and stuff it's really it is quite um a mix of mixed bag of, of various things but then the idea is to have the, like the discussion with people and let them bring their ideas to it so at the moment we've got in canterbury a bit over 60 members i think so and yeah so from there we sort of found a few people who didn't actually come from canterbury started joining wellington and otago and Hamilton now have smaller branches, though Ham Wellington's going quite steadily now. What, what would you consider the aims of the organisation, especially, you know, at some point you've needed a charter to sort of cohere the activities. How would you consider the, the purpose or the aims of the organisation? We have a pretty broad aim to like uh, be a political home for people with a variety of, of views that are, could broadly be categorised as, as socialist we don't really try and build unity around like assessment of a specific revolutionary period or like an assessment of historical trends in socialism. We instead just come together around a really common vision of socialism, which we mean um, broadly the political goal of bringing the working class to power at all levels of society in order to establish a system where production is organized to meet human need rather than to pursue the accumulation of private wealth. The unity statement is that simple. 
as far as broader than that, our purpose is very much um, around promoting courage, creating understanding and engagement with the theory, politics and practice uh, and history of socialism and to organise events, workshops, etc. Um, for those ends, just to develop ourselves as an organisation in that sort of image as well. So it is kind of, it's relatively narrow in terms of its purpose, but at the same time, very broad in terms of who can join. Um, I recently did a little address to the May Day event in Wellington and one of the thrusts of that was like, for me, drawing on um, some of what E.P. Thompson wrote about in The Making of the English Working Class early on when he's talking about the London Corresponding Society and these very pre, you know, seriously pre-Marxist uh, radical groups, I suppose, like the period of British Jacobinism and stuff. And I thought what was interesting there is just this idea of um, why limit the number of your members at all, particularly at this time in history, like I find it kind of absurd to think that we would set any sort of really high benchmark for people to want to get involved if they're willing to pay a pretty nominal fee, um, just so we can keep things choking along and they want to come along and talk about politics with us. People aren't lining up around the block to join socialist groups, so I, I, our approach has always been very much like this idea of um, the number of our members shall be unlimited. And the point that particular phrase was saying was that, you know, in that period, you usually had to have... Um, property to join any club like this and they would assume to just be small we like the the idea of a mass political group was actually brand new then you know it sounds common sense to us now in a lot of ways but it was brand new then and I guess um a lot of my thinking and thinking we had when we discussed with each other is maybe we're entering a sort of like a weird re-emergence of that period in some ways um obviously we carry some of the baggage of history with us but we're also in a weird new naivety period of, of politics. Just to clarify for listeners, um, Tom, which uh, historical period are you picturing in your head right now? Be the very early 1800s, pre-48, probably. In what way do you see similarities with that period? Maybe could you flesh that out a little more? While we do have these sort of rumps of mass workers' organisations in society now, which is a little different, obviously. So we have the remnants of Labour parties. We have the remnants of um, mass unionism. The actual level of political engagement among who we could call the proletariat or the working class um, is extremely low and very volatile in a lot of ways. It's not particularly organized. And when it is somewhat organized or you do find points of unity, it is um, fairly broad and around general principles, I suppose, like a thrust of principle. So when I talk about a new period of naivety, like, Sometimes you talk to people who are into politics, they all imagine, well, they all speak as though we've got this really clear left and right. We know exactly what we mean when we talk about that and everyone else knows as well. And it's really, really obvious. But I actually think like for the vast majority of people that they probably don't think about it like that, really. They might vaguely know what is meant by left and right um, when it comes around to election time, sort of. But that's almost a foreign language to so many working people now that we are in a period of like... Um, you know, it's a, it's, it's both got a lot of opportunity in terms of um, talking about politics and trying to define a, a natural independent working class politics again, but it's also, um, yeah, surprisingly difficult. Also, I think people are surprised sometimes by how how weird it is out there. Sometimes the the left sort of expects to meet a lot of working people who will come along because they heard about you know workers' power or it's very simple, you know shorter hour and higher pay kind of mentality and they mm. expect them to bring with them a lot of cultural affectations and 
uh, social attitudes of the left at the same time. And um, I don't think that's the case at all. I don't think we can rely on that at all. And I don't think we can even be in a position to feel disappointed by that. Maybe just one more quick follow-up on that. One of the things we in Platypus try to contemplate a lot is the meaning of this distinction, the left and right, the historical categories of left and right, what they mean or could mean today, what they have meant historically as well. Just maybe how would you understand these categories? What, what utility are they for Marxists and particularly in today, but also in the past? Well, speaking for, for today, what utility are they? If we aren't aware of what these blocks are and where they came from and how they now shape the world and how they try and convince us to participate or support or whatever if we don't if we're not conscious of that then it's very easy to be duped right i think it'll be very very easy to be sucked in and just become kind of a captive voting block or a captive organizing block or a captive um, audience of whatever kind um, a stockholm syndrome of the left as sort of marxists and socialists and i think that's a really big danger at the moment even the tradition of socialists saying let's vote blah, 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 without illusions. To me, that is saying, let's vote without expectations. Let's vote without any ability to influence what they're going to do. And they don't care if we vote for them or not because we're one, we don't matter enough. And two, we, yeah, we can't wrest anything out of them. So they just uh, either assume our votes or don't really care if they're not there. Understanding what the left is, is almost understanding who's out there presuming you're going to back them. And what can you do to sort of actually be aware of that dynamic and try and build your own independent political power even if though at the moment it's starting you know at a pretty low level and is not exactly picking up steam really quickly or anything but you you, you got to be aware of it yeah right right yeah so you've you've really helped us paint a picture for how you're located relative to the left i think and how you see the current uh conditions in which the left is located it provokes me to to ask how you want to use your organization what aims do you hope to get out of the New Zealand Federation for Socialist Societies? And uh, what kind of topics, for instance, do you want to emphasize with, with those that engage with you? Even my considerations, what I think we should be focusing on or aiming towards has changed since we've started. Um, earlier on, it was probably a bit more specifically Marxist and specifically the neo guest sort of um, position coming out of, to some degree, the weekly worker and then some of the um, the crew who seemed to be mostly in Florida for a while <laughs> in the States and stuff. Um, I thought that was sort of an interesting restatement of a different kind of Marxism from the post-war um, Trotskyist and other non-Stalinist, whatever you want to call it, um, Marxism. They were sort of like, well, what about this? This is older and um, kind of what all the Bolshevism and stuff grew out of anyway. So, so what's that about? But since then, it's probably changed a little bit. The influence of heterodox thinkers like William Morris and stuff has come in. Like he features pretty heavily in a lot of what we do and refer to. And like our little quote about being chiefly educational comes from William Morris. And while obviously I have some criticisms of his kind of, you know, it'd be a bit of a cliche to be from New Zealand and be like, I think William Morris is right because, you know, his version of socialism basically describes Hobbiton, um, which would be a bit on the nose. Could you perhaps tell us a little bit about William Morris? I, I'm not sure how widely known he is. Yeah, sure. So William Morris was a, um, a sort of uh, late uh, 19th century English socialist. He didn't really start out as a socialist and was a factory owner. 
bit of a romantic and a bit of an artisan as well. He, he got very into the idea of making quality handmade goods, rediscovering old forms of craft work and so on. And some of that interest and his interest in goods at the time drew him towards socialism. So he was seeing the adulteration of goods, the very low quality of goods, the mass production and the way it turned labor into this sort of like very depressing drudgery. Like he has an article called useful work versus useless toil. And he was living in an era, which is, you know, effectively the Dickensian cliche of, you know, um, children working in factories and so on, and just extremely repetitive, unfulfilling labor to create low quality goods at a very quick pace that get sold for an exorbitant profit while you barely can, you know, um, buy a seat in the tavern at the end of the night. What interests me about Morris is, is, was particularly his ideas around, I think, work and labor are quite interesting in that it doesn't try to just get out the other side of extreme alienation that comes from, you know, the capitalist division of labor and um, the, the wage relation and stuff. It sort of does try and maintain the notion of, um, you know, useful labor and stuff being life's prime want and it actually being a, a positive thing and something that motivates people a lot. And to me, I think um, a socialism that actually sees the creative capacity and the, um, the real joy in fulfilling and productive and useful, and in Morris's case, beautiful labor that makes really quality things that people see that themselves in and identify that they have made that and that's something, um, something valuable that they've done. This is again very much speaking from my perspective, though I think it probably is shared by a few people in Canterbury at least, is um, a lot of the assumptions and what I think Morris seemed to, to bring was this idea of, you know, actually trying, it wasn't exactly, it's not like autarkic self-sufficiency, he does imagine a pretty large integrated society, but nonetheless it doesn't have this sort of dogmatic, it must be everywhere all at once uh, as soon as possible or it will fail. Um, whether there is a worthwhile way to think about what socialists can be doing, even at a less international level, should we be reconsidering questions of like not necessarily taking power or whether power should be taken or so on at, a, at national levels, but whether there is um, any question of like a national economic program. Is that something that socialists should, should actually think about rather than just waiting for, you know, at least a continent, which a lot of people say, if not a sort of domino effect of the entire planet to, to go red in order to do anything. You also run a uh, the magazine for the Federation, Commonweal. So tell us a little bit about its publication. Uh, who's it targeted to? Commonweal has one issue so far, and that was um, just this year. So it's quite a recent one. Um, Initially, the actual idea was to have a members newsletter. So we, we thought we should have a, a newsletter that goes around to all of our members and they can write in and we can discuss that way so that you have a, a different place to have discussions and longer form debates and stuff away from social media, but also without the sort of mm, volatile distraction of when you're actually meeting in person, because we really do emphasize meeting face to face. We think that's a really important part of what we do. Now that there's a national federation, it was like, well, we need to be able to have discussions beyond just um, people who can meet occasionally in um, Canterbury or whichever centre they're in. Um, so we're actually in a weird interim period where we're like, we've used it as propaganda this time around. We've printed a few hundred copies and aren't charging for them and stuff. And are trying to just hand them to, obviously, members get a copy, but also people who we think are 
fairly closely sympathetic so it's not so much of a throwaway sort of document it's um fairly well printed and quite nicely done and stuff now we're sort of in the process of figuring out what we want to do with it generally like is it going to be subscriptions for people who are pretty closely aligned with us is it going to be a more something we can hand out as much as possible to try and um, engage with people outside the society who's going to write in it is it going to be just us writing in it is it going to be something that people can submit to and all of those things are still being decided um, so that doesn't answer it entirely but the, the the primary purpose for now at least is definitely an emphasis on getting members to write in and it doesn't have to be long and it doesn't have to be too theoretical and it can be as theoretical as they like. It can be reviews of, of stuff they've read or, or seen or listened to, or it can be, you know, deep dives into some historical um, sect or something they think is interesting. I noticed in, in the first issue, which came out early this year, there was articles by Martin Crick and Paul Hopkinson on the Freedom Convoy, the sort yep. of New Zealand version of the anti-mandate convoys that were going on in the United States. Also, Michael McClellan wrote who's with us, wrote an article for Platypus Review on the same topic. So maybe I'll just switch to Michael. Michael, do you want to tell us a little bit about the protests and the, and the response from the left? And then we'll cross back to you, Tom, to talk about your publications. Cool. In uh, January of this year, inspired by the Canadian protests that were emerging in response to some of the global COVID-19 responses, New Zealanders from a wide range of backgrounds came down upon Parliament lawns. So that's in the capital of New Zealand, Wellington, and they were uh, responding to vaccine mandates that had uh, were slated to be introduced. It lasted 23 days and they were removed by police armed with riot shields, uh, sponge bullets, um, fire hoses, that sort of thing. And uh, fights broke out and it was kind of a big headline, it was a big deal in the news and it was it seemed like it was the only thing people were talking about. So I wrote the article as a response to the way that the left was, uh, was framing it in the sense that I felt there were less, uh, there was a smaller variety of responses to it coming from the left. And I wanted to basically ask why. Specifically, there were some voices on the left that were um, celebrating the fact that the police were violently suppressing these protesters and so I wanted to explore that a bit and pose the question. I've noticed uh, there are some responses that Paul Hopkinson and Munkrick specifically have put in uh, Commonweal. I'm just finding a quote here. Yeah, Paul Hopkinson wrote, rather than showing empathy, understanding, and listening to the protesters, while not necessarily agreeing with them, it shows abuse, ridicule, and oppression. So I wanted to ask, how has your organization kind of thought of about these protests? What's been the response to the writings that uh, you've published in Commonweal? Our response was probably pretty well represented in those two articles, actually, because uh, we had a pretty long and often, um, what's that awful corporate word used, robust discussion about it, because there is a pretty broad range of, of, of feelings about it um, or analysis I suppose um, sometimes it doesn't even get to quite that level but it is just a sense of you know um, base principle arguing various conflicting principles sometimes arguing against each other I'd say was what was going on as an organization we um, I don't think we ended up taking any position publicly because we didn't think it would be reasonable to do so we don't tend to do that anyway just because of the nature of the sort of organization we are unless it's a very clear-cut case 
but um, even so, this was one that was um, that drew a lot of conversation. Nonetheless, for me, one of the better summings up of the positions that would probably include Paul Hopkinson's approach and Martin's to some degree as well would be by another member, Victor Billow, who um, wrote his, I think, in the newsroom. It did certainly consider those protests extremely confused, quite volatile, some of the ideas absolutely nuts. Nonetheless, it contained a lot of empathy for um, for people who had, were at the protests um, without, um, as Paul says, without necessarily conceding any of their um, demands or analysis of, of what was going on. But I guess my position on it personally would be that the anti-mandate arguments deserved a better articulator than what they got in New Zealand because the people who were on the Parliament lawn, frankly, they did not make their case well. They didn't seem to really have a particular case anyway. They had some demands. They were pretty broad in stroke in terms of, you know, just remove all health, all of the health orders basically related to COVID-19, arrest half the government, <laughs> depending who you asked, if not all of them. So yeah, the, the articulation of the anti-mandate position here, I would say, was less developed or less complicated to respond to as a socialist than even like in Australia, I'd say, and certainly in some parts of Europe, where there was this um, really clear sort of labour question involved in it. While it may well have been here, I just wonder if New Zealand is so out of practice of articulating any politics in that form that none of the participants in the protest seem to make that case in a way that was particularly quickly recognisable for a socialist listening to it. You know, if you were trying to go with a, uh, an almost sympathetic ear, come up like the term like steel manning that approach, particularly from a socialist, you want to go down there, you want to hear someone saying, this is bullshit, this is giving too much power to bosses to get rid of us, uh, to force us to have various medical decisions in order to keep jobs. You know, that should be a personal choice or whatever. You didn't really hear that. It didn't cut through if it was there. Even people who were willing to, to go there and check and often got lampooned brutally by a lot of the rest of the left, like Bryce Edwards, when he was writing the Democracy Project and stuff, he was not finding people who were necessarily articulating that kind of labour grievance aspect of it, which I think you do see in examples in Italy and even Australia and stuff. What do you make of the aftermath of that now, now that it's you know many months behind us, let's say, how, how are you finding the left's reflections on, on that period? What reflections? <laughs> it sounds dismissive, but I mean, I, I, I couldn't really tell you. Um, I think some of us in the socialist society probably agreed that, particularly the unions, because they were probably in the best position to, to make this sort of case, did drop the ball a little bit as far as um, maybe, you know, even if they wanted to be pretty pro- people getting vaccinated, they could have gone a bit harder in their public statements at least because um, privately they, they kind of did do this in practice, but um, publicly they were just purely pro-vaccine rather than also saying, and if people choose not to get it, we will fight for their jobs or we will make sure they get redeployed elsewhere or we'll argue for escrow until such a time as the vaccine mandates um, are lifted. So we'll argue for them to be kept pretty much um, as though they're on some sort of um, discretionary leave, <laughs> which, you know, would have been a, a, on the one hand, people would see that and say that's very expensive for a very small number of people or a fairly small number of people probably. But you do also sort of go, isn't that the point that it's um, it's a very small number of people and considering the amount of money the government was willing to pour 
onto businesses and into people's pockets to try and keep them um, at home, it would not have been beyond the realm of possibility for the unions to at least um, try to say that maybe people should just have their positions kept open for them for such a time as the, the vaccine um, mandates were decided that they were no longer necessary, which obviously is coming. Plenty of places have already got that. My own workplace recently sort of did a bit of a staff survey around what positions they wanted. And because, um, you know, we have various stuff that's more public and less public facing. And obviously in New Zealand for a while, there were VAX passports to a lot of, um, to go into a lot of places. And then staffing is different again. And um, places could be mandated by state order or they could be mandated based on a sort of slightly different health and safety related thing and that can come up for review so point being that there is there's the opportunity to say you know this isn't this isn't going to be forever and um in other places in the world you sort of see that even where they do try and keep it for a long time because of the nature of the the vaccines then it's not a sort of one or two and done it's sort of a this recurring thing and they're trying to figure out how long it sort of applies for and all that sort of stuff and um i think you also see the fraying edges of how much people would put up with as far as that goes, that sort of rolling, if you do this, then we get to keep your job and stuff. And then then it's like, oh, but you will have to get a booster. Oh, but well, you will this and this and this. And like people do rally together really well. Like I, I think there was a, you know, a fairly good argument that a lot of the responses to COVID were quite impressive examples of social mobilization for what people believed was the common good. I'm not going to get into whether it was or not because I'm, you know, there's the scope for that sort of conversation as well beyond me anyway. Um, but that's what people believe they were doing. So that was actually quite incredible in a lot of ways. But people often do that because they know it's not forever in the same way that people might rally around the flag or the nation and, and, and take it on the chin during a war. But they know it's not a forever war. You know, they eventually wars are ended by people who get sick of it in the same way I think um, COVID restrictions would have been ended by people who just got sick of them at some point. Um, all right. Well, I guess that that's a good point to wrap up then. What I'd like to do though is to give you a few minutes if you wanted to advertise any uh, public talks or any events you come up, but also to tell us your website, how to get in touch and where sure. your branches are. Our branches currently, um, Canterbury was the first one and is still the largest, but we've got a, a second branch in Wellington, which are going strongly now as well. And um, new branches in Hamilton and um, Otago, um, based in Dunedin for the latter one, who are just sort of getting going now. And um, we'll be expecting to do their sort of inaugural public event this, um, this year. Um, they've already been organising together with their members and stuff. And you can find us at uh, just socialists.org.nz. We managed to scoop that one up or socialistsocieties.org.nz, they both go there. And I think we still have Canterbury Social Society as well because that was the first website and it's all been transferred over. As far as um, getting in contact with us, just via there is easy enough. Um, if you go to the different branches, there'll be an email address you can access. And um, people are welcome to find me on Facebook if they want to. I don't really mind that sort of stuff. Mm. If they are curious about my positions in particular or want to know more about the society, and as far as events go, on the website, we've got the Winter of Discontent going on at the moment. It's sort of a bit of a joke. So it's like discontent. So it's Winter of Content. Um, so that in Canterbury is our, um, we're doing four events a month. So that's what we're doing at the moment. That just started. Um, so we're two events in, and that has been a panel event on some previous left-wing political parties. Um, 
And then there was a social event just this week. Next week, we've got a film screening. And then the following Sunday, we've got an economics lecture. And that pattern basically repeats for four months. Definitely worth checking out if you can. And we do try and live stream as much as we can onto our um, Facebook as well when we have those public educational events. And from our Facebook, you can find YouTube links and stuff to previous um, lectures and stuff too. All right. Well, hopefully Platypus members will see you at We'll come to your events and we'll see you around. Uh, thanks, Tom, for joining us and oh, thank thanks you. for listening. Uh, we'll put all those links in the description to the event, uh, to the podcast as well. Awesome. Good to see you. Thanks, Michael. Well. Cheers. Cool. Thanks, Tom. Well, thank you. production of the Platypus Affiliated Society, featuring original tracks by Thomas Delaci. Platypus is an international membership-based organization that hosts reading groups, public fora, research, and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication, The Platypus Review. To contact, learn more about Platypus, or to access the entire archive of Platypus reviews and panel recordings, please visit us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. Bye! Thank you.